Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 23rd, 2021, and my guest is Glenn Weil of Microsoft, where he is the office of the chief technology officer, political economist, and social technologist, a mouthful, but it does create a great acronym, which is Octopest. Glenn is the Octopest of Microsoft. More simply, he advises Microsoft senior leaders on macroeconomics, geopolitics, and the future of technology. His mission statement there is, I help a corporate octopus reimagine itself as democratic infrastructure, rigorously accountable to those it holds power over. Glenn was last here in May of 2018 talking about radical markets. Our topic for today is antitrust. And this draws on a conversation Glenn and I had with the American Bar Association's Antitrust Sections magazine, Antitrust, (laughs) on what policy objectives antitrust law ought to advance and how it can achieve this. A transcript of that conversation will appear in the fall issue of Antitrust magazine, and we'll post a link to that when that issue appears. Glenn, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It's uh, great to be back with you. We had such a great conversation a few years back, and we're looking forward to talking to you again. Me too. Now, traditionally, antitrust has been focused on making sure that firms didn't gain monopoly power or market power more generally, which would let them raise prices on consumers in the name of higher profits. How should we think about this model in a world where so many firms charge nothing out of pocket to to their consumers, Google, Facebook, social media generally? What role does antitrust have in this world? And it's a world that a lot of people are scared about and want to have got to do something, but the traditional tools of antitrust are not so obviously applicable. What's your take on that? Um, so first, you know, you said traditionally antitrust is focused on X. And the question is what one means by tradition. So traditions have changed in antitrust quite a bit over time. Um, the origins of the antitrust law are quite different, I think, than the way that they were, say, applied in the early part of the 20th century, and then from the New Deal until maybe the 70s, and then again. So there's been a lot of evolution in in the way the doctrine has been applied over time. But I think its origin is best summarized by a quote that I don't directly have in front of me, but um, was uh, given by John Sherman, who wrote the, uh, after whom the original antitrust law is named on the House of the Senate. And he said that just as we would not tolerate a king as a political power, we should not tolerate a autocrat over the sale of the, or distribution or transport of any of the necessities of life. And as such, I really think antitrust is fundamentally about power, and in particular about what it means to have a democratic society. And the way that uh, it has often been interpreted, even in those early periods, is that the role of antitrust is sort of to block or break up or stop accumulations of power. But I think the thing that's confusing about that is that if you think of, you know, the 18th century, um, there were two great revolutions, the French and the American. And the approach of the American Revolution to concentrated power was to make it accountable to the people. And the approach of the French Revolution was to sort of kill or break up those concentrations of power. Uh, and I think that the former worked much better than the latter. Um, and, and, you know, the British uh, sort of gradual revolution of the 19th century was similar. It, it didn't end the monarchy. It made it gradually accountable to the people. And, and I think that we need to get much more back to that spirit, back to the spirit of using antitrust as a means to make corporations accountable to their stakeholders democratically, rather than using it as a means to just block or break up agglomerations that really result fundamentally from, you know, what you could call economies of scale, increasing returns, et cetera. So that sounds really beautiful. Um, I could hear the music swelling in the background. (laughs) 
when you use the word democracy and <clears throat> accountability, but that's a tough um, – it's not an easy thing to do. So let's let's talk about what you mean by that to start with. But we'll get to how you might achieve those those goals, but I don't even understand yet what you mean by that. So yeah. – Let's let's start with an even simpler, more basic idea. Let's talk about power because that's at the root of how I think you think about this. When you say a corporation's powerful, what does that what does that mean? Um, so I think the reality is power is one of these many concepts in social science that we can model in a variety of ways, but we've never managed to fully grasp. Um, I think that antitrust has come, and I think it's reasonable for it to focus on market power that is the ability of firms to uh the the limits on the options that a consumer effectively has or a worker effectively has or any counterparty to trade effectively has in an interaction with a firm now the existence of market power doesn't necessitate charging a higher price it's it's a condition it's not a choice so um, you can have power, but to exercise it in a variety of ways. And so focusing on the existence of the power rather than on it's a particular way in which it's exercised, I think, allows you to get around um, the concerns about the, these companies not uh, choosing to charge prices and instead uh, finding other ways to uh, exploit their market power. So let, let's talk about that in a little more detail on the power side. So Again, I'll use the word traditionally, recognizing that tradition changes over time, as you pointed out nicely. Uh, But traditionally, the argument would have been, say, uh, a monopolist or an oligopolist, meaning a a market where there's only a few sellers. One example would be from 50, 60 years ago, the U.S. auto market, before there was a large influx of, of imports. There were only three major suppliers of cars. Their competitiveness, sometimes three firms could compete quite uh, aggressively, but the argument would be maybe they didn't try so hard that it's either an implicit cartel or a form of implicit collusion. There was uh, explicit collusion was is against the law in the United States, but it was not a, that competitive a market. And when the Japanese and others came in with competitive products, the price fell, quality improved, and consumers were better off. Um that's sort of the traditional model of market power. They had some competition from outside, reduced it, and it was an improvement in the well-being of, of consumers. In, in today's world, how would we think about that? In the car market, I only had three options in the United States before there were a lot of imports. And that restraint on my choice set was hard on me because it allowed the firm sometimes, perhaps, to charge more than they otherwise would, offer fewer options that I might want. What's going on in today's world that mirrors that that kind of power? Um, I would say that the most interesting examples of accumulating market power are ones that go along with tremendous gains in and changes to the types of opportunities we have. So if you ask, why did those U.S. firms end up with so much power? Well, fundamentally, it was because the internal combustion engine and the car was one of the most important revolutions of the 20th century. And along with it, the mass production techniques, assembly line techniques pioneered by Ford Corporation, were one of the most important social and organizational innovations of the 20th century. And it was those combined revolutions that allowed for that market power to accumulate in the first place. Um, And eventually, uh, there was imitation, those became standardized. We sort of ran into the limits of what those could achieve, and competition set in, and we were able to fully take advantage of the benefit that was brought by those disruptions to the nature of the market. It took a long time, though. And fundamentally, the question that faces us is how can we accelerate the process of fully taking advantage of new transformational technologies? And today, um, I think we see very similar dynamics. Uh, The Internet, um, certain forms of what's often called artificial intelligence, uh, personal computing have transformed 
so much of how we live. And yet we've been slow to be able to harness them fully. Uh, the productivity statistics don't reflect there being these fundamental transformations going on. Something is standing in the way of that general purpose technology working itself out to the extent that things like air conditioning, sewage, electricity, uh, the automobile did. And um, the question is, how do we accelerate that process more effectively? How do we bring the full benefits uh, that these new technologies can can allow to the the people who they serve? Um, and I think you, you see that in with Amazon today. You see that with uh, Facebook, Google, uh, in the cloud computing market that my employer, Microsoft, participates in. I think there are many examples here of limits to fully taking advantage of what is offered by these new technologies. And you're suggesting, and it, just to add a footnote to what you said about the original story that I told, this massive opportunity that was created by this technological innovation of the internal combustion engine created a giant prize for the firms that could turn that invention into a product. And they did it quite well, you could argue, or they didn't. Who knows? It's not even an answerable question to me. But obviously, there was progress. It took a while. The early cars were not as good as the later cars, and they weren't as good as the cars we have today. And that inevitable process of innovation, tinkering, trial and error, consumers changing, landscape changing so that what people want in their cars is totally different, all of that's going on at the same time. And there's this big prize called profits that are motivating firms to, to try different stuff. And no one knows in advance what's going to work. And in the early days of, of cars, there, there were dozens and dozens of producers. When we got to the three largest ones, that, that took a very long time. And no one knew in advance which three would be, if it would be th- that it would be three. And similarly, you're suggesting that in today's world, we have this explosion of innovation as people try to use the internet in creative and interesting ways, but they're limited by the fact that you do have to cover your costs. And there's a prize of profit out there, and that you're suggesting has slowed the the ability to use that tool as effectively as possible. Is that a a fair summary of what you said? Absolutely. So profit stands in the way in, in two ways, right? And, and it's, it's really a, a result of a fundamental, you know, economic idea, which is that when you have an increasing returns process. Explain what that is. Uh, increasing returns is a case where all of us together can achieve more than we can uh, the sum of us separately. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, that, that's, a, that's the general way in which I, I think about it. So cities are a great example. Networks are a great example. Um, Etc. Whenever you have a process like that, the the basic idea of economic, you know, classical economics is you're supposed to pay out to everyone their marginal product, how much on the margin they contribute. Now, with a decrease in a decreasing returns context, you can make a profit and still pay everyone their marginal product, because if you have decreasing returns in the marginal product of everyone, in total is less than the amount that you produce. And so you can take the rest as profit. But in an increasing returns process, that's not true. If you try to pay everyone out their marginal product, you'll consume more than everything that's created. And so you have to run a loss in order to, you know, pay everyone out their marginal product in in a decreasing, increasing returns process. Now, if you try to make profits on an increasing returns process, what you do is either you... um, Make some profits, which gives you an incentive to create the thing in the first place. Uh, But then you need to pay everyone way less than their marginal product or charge them way more than the marginal cost to you to produce it. And therefore, you exclude participation. But more importantly, you reduce the benefits that it has. Because it's an increasing returns process, it wants to be used by lots of people. Uh, But you limit that as you try to take out profit. Um, or, so some would say now. Just yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. Some listeners are going to be lost at this point because yeah. of the complexity of marginal. This yeah. marginal that, but, yeah, yeah. but to make it simple, 
and I can't believe I just said this, marginal this and marginal that. Yeah. It's, it's the lifeblood of our field. But but the, the point is is that uh, if I can make it even a really Please, brutal I, simplification. I appreciate that. In these kind of products, the network kind in particular, where the more people that are playing in the sandbox, the more pleasant it is to be in the sandbox, as opposed to the traditional world where – or the – decreasing returns world where as more people come in the sandbox, there's less room for other people and it's no fun to play there. It gets less and less fun. Here it's more fun. And we, we, we understand that from the, the virtual world that many of us spend a lot of time in. But if you want to have lots of people in it, uh, that goes against what is usually what a profit maximizing firm is going to sometimes need to do, which is to constrain how many people have access by price. You're going to charge people a certain discouraging amount in order to capture some of those benefits. And in doing so, you'll have lost some of the potential social gain. I th- I, that's, I think, a very yeah, that's of right. What, and by the way, of course, as say. you mentioned earlier, it's not necessary that you do it with price. You can do it with other, you know, another Correct. ways, right? And, and, and so we'll, we can come back to those later. But Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah. yeah. But the, but, but, the, the but point I want to... exactly wanna, right. But the point I want to challenge is, is that um, increasing returns to scale or uh, and to get away from the the jargon, products with network benefits, products where markets where or services better, where you want to be around more people rather than fewer. That's just a reality, what you're just describing. So one counterpoint to your claim that, that this is a you know a problem, one way to say it is that well just this is the way the world is. Well, well I don't think it's I mean, a problem. I think it's great. I okay, actually think it's very on. far from being a problem. It's the most. It's it's <laughs> carry it's on. the source of all value. I mean, if there were no network effects, if there were no increasing returns, we, none of us could live better than we could live in isolated huts without even our families. So, increasing returns are the source of all civilization. They're the source of everything we want. It's not bad. It's great. It's the best thing that there is. The problem is not with increasing returns. The problem is with the standard capitalist logic which is optimized for a setting of decreasing returns and not optimized for a setting of increasing returns. All the theorems that we just read about market efficiency, all of that is true only under the assumption of decreasing returns. And actually, it's a really interesting historical relationship to the marginal revolution and so forth that we could go into, but it may bore. Yeah, we're definitely not getting into that. that. We're we're not going to get into that, but let me me take an example that that we've talked about on the program before and see if I understand what you're saying correctly. And then we'll see if your conclusion follows for me. I don't see it yet. So um, Adam Smith said that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And so what he meant by that was, is that if you can sell over a wider and wider range of, of customers, as your customer base expands, you can take advantage of economies of scale. You can, and this has nothing to do with comparative advantage, nothing to do with David Ricardo's insight. It's just that pure size, in theory, up to a point at least, has these incredible productivity benefits because you can rearrange how people work. You can use capital with those human beings to produce things you would never be able to produce. And you know, the obvious example is if you're selling 10 or 100 million cars a year, you're going to use a different technology than if you're selling one car a year. If, you're, if you have a market of one, you're going to, you might hand make a car. It would never make sense to create a giant production line. The capital that makes cars so inexpensive today compared to the past. So as the market for cars expands, not just the market, but your market, your ability as a producer to, 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 to meet customer demand, you can use all kinds of improved and better ways and cheaper ways to produce your, your, your product. That the fact that the firm has to make a profit in doing that is what motivates them to learn about those techniques, to tr- discover those things. You can't just, I, mean, I don't understand where you're going to, how's your story of capitalism going to deal with that? I mean, I love that. I love capitalism because capitalism, profit and loss, gives firms the incentives to discover those new techniques and new products and so on. And it's, works pretty well so, what do we need that's new what do we need to need that's different yeah so um one question is what can we do that's better and, and let's get into that at some point but the first question is whether the usual justifications that are used to say that capitalism is the best system the most efficient or whatever have any relevance in this context 
And my claim is they don't. Like, there might be other reasons we like capitalism, you know, and we can talk about those, right? Uh, and then we can compare those to other systems. But the usual justification that, you know, standard economics would give, which is that competition with decreasing returns leads to efficient allocation is just not applicable in contexts like that. And so we but the 300 years, would... But the 300 years of civilization that you invoked implicitly, right? Yeah. Which which were the exploitation of the increasing returns to scale of trade as it went from neighborhoods to countries to globe. We managed to pull that off without with that old fashioned model of people just trying to do the best they could. Well, that's that's not my interpretation of what happened during those 300 years. Like, I think obviously we moved beyond the forms of social organization that preexisted capitalism. Uh but most of what was going on during the most productive periods there, I don't think is well understood as capitalism in some simplistic sense of what capitalism means. I think, you know, you take the most productive period in human history, which was the 1920s to the 1950s, the greatest rate of productivity growth, um, was the period of progressive reform, the period of the New Deal, the height of precisely the set of institutions that were aiming to complicate, democratize, move beyond some of the limitations of 19th century uh, uh, institutions. And even those 19th century institutions themselves were built on a process precisely of expanding the market by democratizing the institutions within which the market lived because the sort of feudal ownership-based structure didn't serve the new economies of scale well. So I actually, the way I read the last 300 years is a gradual process of building greater and greater economies of scale and building democratic institutions to govern those to allow their full benefits to be taken advantage of. I love talking to you, Glenn. I just, it's the greatest. Um, that's so interesting and I can't disagree more. So let, let's, let's see <laughs> if I can, if we can get into why. Uh, and let you defend your your view. I, you're suggesting that the productivity of the mid part of the 20th century, which saw, by the way, the greatest depression of in in American history and maybe world history of, of for the 300 years that we know of, that that was that productivity came from policies like the Social Security. Act of 1936, the price controls of the uh, the Roosevelt administration, the, the slaughtering of hogs to foolishly try to keep prices high. Really? What, what are you thinking about there? What in particular, so, besides so you, post hoc ergo propter hoc, after this, therefore because of this, what do you have in mind when you talk about these democratic changes? Yeah, uh, great question. So some of the ones that I would point to as being most successful include um, the antitrust and utility regulatory policies of the 30s through the 50s, 60s, the um, dramatic investment in uh, the public investment in research and development, which helped create the um, Internet and so many of the advances, the advances, the fundamental technological advances really for the you know, second half of the 20th century that were fueled by the investment in uh, dealing with the Second World War. Um, the uh, And I do believe, by the way, that a lot of the social insurance institutions also played a critical role in allowing entrepreneurial activity to flourish uh, in the, you know, uh, years following the World War. The GI Bill and the way that it enabled the dramatic accumulation of uh, capabilities and uh, uh, broad, you know, broadly spread innovation, uh, the rise of labor unions and the way that they uh, allowed the um, basic democratization of the workplace and a more inclusive labor environment that created incentives for productivity enhancement. So I think all of those things were relevant. I also think many of the examples you gave, I would agree were not terribly productive. And I would argue that if you look at the entrepreneurial markets, which I think you would champion, you'd find that 90% 
of the things that are tried don't work. Uh, For sure. Ten percent do. Yeah, no, I cherry, uh, yeah. I cherry pick them unfairly. Yeah. I, I concede yeah. that, <laughs> but but the 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 problem I have with that with that story, and let's not spend too much time on it because it's it's um, oh that's entertaining. I enjoy it. Uh, the problem is, you know, the the Social Security Administration, Social Security Act, nineteen thirty six was was uh, uh, trivial, just like the income tax was trivial at first. They were very small amounts. The kind of de- democratization and social programs you're talking about really hit their stride in the mid-1960s, right, with the, with the Great Society, the magnitudes that, that really were important. Similarly, the unionization from 1950s on, it's declining. It's declining during a time of the post-war era, where, which, which was you know, very productive, 1950 to, say, to 75. Unions are getting less and less important every year in the American workplace over that period. The later part of that, the, the late six, mid-60s to late 60s to early 70s is when welfare programs are starting to really grow and get significant. And that's when we start to get not such a healthy economy. So I think it's going to be hard. You're going to have, going to have a hard time convincing me of those, that story. I'll give you one more chance, and then I want to move on to, to some other issues in the modern era. That, that's, that's fine, Russ. I mean, we can go through timing in many, many different ways, and I think it's going to be tricky to completely settle things. But I do think it's quite striking that the period of greatest productivity growth in U.S. history, uh, in world history, really anywhere, was also a period that I think most people would not characterize as a height for, you know, a, a simplistic notion of capitalism. Like, I think, I think it's or hard to learn this. Yeah. It was not. I would agree with you. It's not the golden era of laissez-faire. You know, people would point to the late 19th century as sort of the closest thing America's had to real laissez-faire capitalism, yeah. which did have quite a bit of, of innovation and economic growth. But uh, yeah, let's put that to the side. Yeah. And I would. I'd love to spar some more at another time. Yeah. But for today, <laughs> yeah. In what sense should we think about democratization, which is a not that doesn't excite me a lot of people find that phrase um i'd say emotionally resonant doesn't resonate with me uh so make the case for why we want our economy to have a democratic participant whatever you want to whatever phrase you want to use uh role how what do you mean by that what does that mean you know, I don't think you mean stockholders voting. I don't think you mean majority rule on referenda within a corporation. You mean something bolder than that for how society, I think, interacts with these with these firms, correct? Yeah. So the first thing I want to be clear about is that sometimes when people talk about democratization, they have in mind a nation state. They think the United States of America should somehow take hold of all the companies within America and that the same process that governs uh, you know, our elected representative should govern the corporate governance. Of, and, and that's not what I mean. Okay. W- why is that not what I mean? Because um, there's a fundamental problem. Like the fundamental problem at the heart of democracy is what I would call the misalignment of actual and natural polities. So what do I mean by that? We know that in the United States, we have a long history of disenfranchising people, whether it was women African-Americans, et cetera, not treating people who had just as much of a stake in the country as part of the democratic process. And we know that as much as we might respect our democratic ideals, that without those people being included, we weren't really living up to those ideals, right? 100%. And um, in the same way, I think that having the United States control Twitter or Facebook or whatever would be just as much of a betrayal of the ideals of democracy uh, as would having the white uh, men uh, of property control the United States. Because the reality is the, um, the, the user base of Twitter is like, I don't know, 15, 20% in the United States or something like that. It just makes no sense if you were going to have a democratic governance of Twitter for it to be based around the U.S. government. Um, and the, the, the reality is that we have these nation states that were set in stone at some historical moment as a result of certain accidents. And the set of people who are there 
are now the ones who get democratically represented. The only structures we really have for democratic representation, approximately, are those. And that is not an appealing basis for um, building uh, democracy in an era like this. So what we, we need is democratic institutions that are actually adapted to the structures of power and interaction and economic activity, social connection that govern our world today. So that that's what I mean by democracy. And then that's the sense of which is much more radical than what it's even crazier. It's even crazier than I thought. Okay. <laughs> Not crazier, less attractive to me. That's what I mean by crazy. I don't mean it's weird. I like weird. So how would that so when I think of, of why I like markets, for example, or sometimes why I like markets more than say political governance, it's because of the feedback loops and the skin in the game that that profit and loss give and that are often missing in the case of, of political markets. And you want to take it a step further. You want to say, let's water those down even more and spread them across the entire globe. How are we going to get anybody to invest in the in wisdom and the decision-making process and the risk-taking that's necessary if they don't have much of a stake in it? They're going to, well, we're going to say there's a stake, but their, their voice is going to be ir- irrelevant, just as it is in voting, by the way, mostly. Well, I think that the genius of large-scale democracies is how thin they are. So I think we need, like, the, the, the United States, I think, was forced to agree on a set of very minimal national government uh, principles, which many people respect, because of the diversity of the nation that it sought to govern. Absolutely. And um, I think that we should aim for the same thing with the corporations. Like the, the, A lot of people talk about interoperability as an answer to market power. I'm a big believer in that. And I think explain what explain what that is. Interoperability means that you basically the the things that are most broadly shared are also the thinnest. They're the things with the least substance to them. They just are basic protocols in which people can interact. Like the internet's a great example of this. Like you hardly even perceive the internet, right? The internet's like a background on which other things happen. Um, whereas pe- many people feel that things like Facebook and Twitter and Google have a lot more substantive control over our experiences. And I think that the broader, the more global the things are, the more that they should be that sort of thin and neutral layer. And um, and as we get more local, and local doesn't need to be physically local, it can be communities of interest, it can be people who listen to Russ's podcast, etc. Then we want much more substantive uh, control in those areas. So I actually think contra... The, the usual way of, of thinking about things, that as we go towards those broader and more flexible systems of democratic control, that that's precisely the way of controlling the power at those levels and making it, you know, actually creating the space for decentralization and localism um, precisely through uh, that democratization process. Because the only thing you can get such diverse people to reach consensus on is things that allow a, a lot of flexibility. And I can give you some very concrete examples of this from, from Taiwan. So in, in Taiwan, um, they've done an incredible set of experiments in participatory democracy using digital tools. And in the process, I think they've come to a number of judgments that would, at least in a certain form, appeal to you very much. So let me give you an example of this. So um, they have this participatory governance platform rather than having you know these divisive twitter like things they have these things that actually have dynamics that lead people towards consensus in the process though they're forced to reach compromises that leave space for everyone to do things in the way that they want to do them and um one example of this was on the issue of gay marriage so taiwan is a very traditional confucian society um where extended families play a very fundamental role and so when a couple weds, um, there's an automatic union of their extended families that comes with that marriage. And this was a source of great opposition to, uh, to gay marriage uh, within the Taiwanese society because extended families didn't want to be connected by something they didn't believe in, right? Um, so they had this polis process, which we can talk about if you want, but it's a it's a process that uses modern uh, machine learning type technology to form clusters and to allow people to do democratic deliberation at scale. 
And the conclusion that they ended up coming to, which was built into law, was that they would create two separate stages to the marriage process for all couples. One in which the the individuals who are marrying marry, and one in which the extended families sign a contract with each other in order to form a union. Um, And this ended up basically honoring the values of both sides more, because the younger generation wanted the freedom to marry as they choose, but um, they actually believe very strongly in these sort of individualistic, contractualist values, right? And on the other hand, the families wanted a direct recognition of their role in um, the wedding, and they got that as well. So that was a way in which democratic deliberation at scale actually gave more space to everyone to uh, reach their uh, uh, desired outcomes. So, so you're suggesting, but we can't. I can't grasp it. You're suggesting there was a virtual town hall, an internet mediated conversation that took place that allowed a set of options to emerge rather than a one size fits all. Would that be a a fair Summary. Exactly. Yeah. And, and actually, there's been they've done this for hundreds of issues. And, and you'd find that many of the solutions, most of the solutions were sort of of this sort. They were like creative ways of finding new mechanisms that allowed sort of changing the space to allow greater freedom to everyone. Um, and they arrived at that through this sort of virtual town hall. And I'm happy to talk about how it works. It's actually quite ingenious because it it enables really a deliberative democratic conversation at scale, which is which is something we haven't been able to do in the past. Yeah, one of the things I don't like about the political process, there are many things I do like, by the way. I always like to make it clear. I'm not an anarchist. People like to, you know, um, caricature sometimes people's views. I'm a classical liberal. It means I want a restrained role for government and expansive role for individual responsibility and choice and voluntary associations of people coming together for profit and for nonprofit in nonprofit ways to, to, to work on things. One of the things I don't like about government is it usually it's blunt. There's a one, you know, there's a law, there's a piece of legislation that applies to everyone in a certain way. For just to take an example, everybody in, in, in welfare gets the same amount of money based on a handful of characteristics that are all very clearly observable and would have to hold up in court, how many children you have, whether you work or not, and so on. Whereas, in theory, in theory, a private charity, while it might struggle to raise money because of the free rider problem, could tailor its solutions in ways that a government agency would struggle to do. I'm not going to romanticize private charity that way. It's also has, it has other problems. But what you're suggesting is that this underlying technology, which I do want you to expand on a second, but I want to make clear what I, what I think I hear from you. What it's allowing people to do is even though it's using the top-down uh, government legislated solution, it's allowing for some multiplicity that often doesn't emerge, does not emerge in, say, U.S. institutions where something's either legal or it's not, or it's it's allowing for a lot more nuance and, and subtlety. Is that true? Yes, and I would even go further than that and say, I, I, I actually agree with everything you said about private charity. I love private charity in, in, in many ways. I think that's the spirit we should aim for. But as you pointed out, it struggles because of the free rider problem. So, like, the goal of all these institutions, in my mind, is to find ways to actually empower that third sector. I want that third sector to grow. I agree with all your critiques of Civil the society, state. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so, at one extreme, we have the American system, which is – it's evolved a little bit, but it's a lot like it was in 1789. It, obviously, there's more inclusiveness. There, there are different – Rules about how we pick senators, exactly. <laughs> There's been some change, but it's fundamentally we vote for people who have power over us, and the only way we restrain them is through the ballot box every few years. We have this you know, radical impeachment thing occasionally, never actually been used in an effective way except as a threat, and it may deter some misbehavior, but it's a very blunt strategy. Explain what a Taiwanese set of institutions or what an American set of institutions would look like that would be different than what we have now. Well, let me let me describe a very radical future and then can come back to what they're actually doing in Taiwan. But um, I think you can imagine a world in which um, most of what is going on is emergent civil society institutions funded based on public goods principles. We can come back to what those are exactly, but 
something about sort of the general value that's being thrown off by the organization rather than what it can extract through the price mechanism. Um, and those institutions sort of in a bottom-up, democratically assembling way, getting funding, um, that funding sort of decaying over time in, in some kind of a way that's a little bit like an election, but not an abrupt, like every four years you have a re-election, but rather that over time that sort of capital that it has gets drawn down and so unless it sort of renews its mandate, it's going to sort of die off. Um, and that being how both most of what we consider private enterprise and most of what we consider the public sector are governed. And so there being very lim limited role for some like fixed geographic, fixed polity nation state, but also very limited role for private profit, you know, simply profit seeking enterprises people in you know seeking things like profit instead do it through these charitable or public goods type uh institutions so what might that mean in the real world for google to pick a non-employer of yours i mean i don't yeah. <laughs> i don't want you to yeah. i don't put you on the spot and talk about microsoft obviously well, but yeah so there's a short-term question and there's a long-term question so in the long term what you could imagine is that there wouldn't be a google there wouldn't be like none of these things would exist actually what instead would happen is that when Sergey or Larry had this idea for a search engine and they knew that advertising would, would make it awful, uh, which they wrote in their original paper. They, 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 I don't know if you've ever seen the original uh, Google paper, but it says it's very important that this never be become based on an advertising model because given the power of you know, AI and whatever, you know, it would totally distort the environment. Um, and suppose that they had that vision. Instead of going and seeking venture capital, um, instead, they would go on sort of like a crowdfunding site. Now, crowdfunding sites, the problem is it's hard to raise much money there because of the free rider problem, right? But imagine that there was a big pool of they do pretty well. They do pretty well. They do okay. Pretty amazing. They do okay. They but do maybe okay. not it's enough like, to fund Google. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, it's not enough to... I think there's very few really scaled enterprises that have been funded through that mechanism, but I, I agree. It's an exciting dimension. Like, I, I like those things, yeah. Um, but imagine there was a big pool of public matching funds that were raised through taxes or philanthropy or whatever that was there to match some of those contributions. And so we got this private decentralized signal to direct these public funds uh, to build an enterprise like this. And it could either be initially at that funding stage, or it could be that there was even a venture capitalist who gave them funding. And then afterwards, um, there was some, you know, crowdfunding voting thing if people really liked the service, you know. So that so it was, a, it could either be private profit anticipation of sort of a prize through this kind of quasi, you know, mm -hmm. civil mechanism, or it could be uh, initial funding directly through the civil mechanism. Both seem useful to me. Um, and that's the way that they were funded. And so then rather than putting advertising whenever they did everything to try to maximize their likely reward in this type of a mechanism that combines elements of, of, you know, democracy and markets. So, you know, that's fascinating. I mean, it, the part that, that I've thought about, maybe I don't think about it correctly and you can tell me, but, you know, when a firm doesn't make it in the current world, and I'm going to pick an example that close to my heart, which is Evernote. Like, I really like Evernote. I understand there's alternatives, but I really like Evernote, and I'm kind of invested quite a bit in it. And it might not make it. I assume at some point it won't. I assume at some point, like most firms, it'll be beaten by some competitor. And then the question will be, well, you know, what about me? And the answer in the world usually is, well, too bad. You're, you know, the whatever product you bought, the private, there's usually a, a market for the parts among aficionados and so on. But we could imagine that these firms would turn over their technology to a public, not a public trust, that's not quite the right word, but to a, a Wikipedia-like collection of people who care about it, either because they use it or they just think it's beautiful or they think it's interesting and fun. And it wouldn't improve at the, way it, at the rate it has perhaps in the past. There might not be any more innovation in it. It would just be, quote, static, stuck which is great. I, I love the way it is now. I don't need any more innovation. You know, people say, well, it doesn't have a very good calendar. I don't care. Or a to-do list. I don't care. That's not what I use it for. And I'd like it to persist and be available. But a lot of these products that have created this network of users, 
and sometimes they're communicating with each other, obviously, and, you know, something like Twitter. Couldn't they be sustained in a, some sort of public-private, whatever you want to call it, democratically governed product that would – the way a nonprofit would run it, right? That seems to be a possibility. I'm all in favor of that, and I'm even more excited about it for the ones that are successful. So I, I don't think that that, yeah, make needs, that case. needs to kill innovation. I actually think that can be the source of innovation. So I think that, um, you know, there's something called exit to community, this notion that, like, w- we should aim for a world where as you grow, as you scale, you actually become the collective property of those who you govern, you know, effectively. No, who, who you serve. You mean who, who use you the serve. product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and serve and govern. I mean, that's the thing. Like, that, that, that there's always that yeah. two-way relationship, you know. Uh, with any, anything that we have reason to value, we also have reason in some sense to fear because we have to fear the loss of what it is that we value in it, you know? Yeah. But I'm thinking about, you know, I think about someone like Mark Zuckerberg who I don't know anything about personally and not, I'm just using it as an, as an example. If you built a product that is as phenomenally successful as that, meaning it gives an immense amount of joy to, to many, many people, and you don't like what it's become, you realize, and there, there was this interesting set of ads that Facebook ran about a year ago. Sometime, I think they ran during the Super Bowl last year about how, yeah, Facebook's going to be what it used to be or whatever. Kind of a nostalgic thing. And, but suppose you're the, the founder of a firm like that and you don't like what it's become. It's kind of hard to get off that treadmill because you've sold stock to all these people who have priced into that stock this future flow of ad revenue of – manipulating people through what they see in their feed. And I have mixed feelings about that whole phenomenon. But let's say you're, you don't like it. And if you don't like it, it's this equity market kind of says, too bad. This is the way it's going to be. Right. Um, you, in the process of creating something, you know, like to me, the entrepreneur, it, what an entrepreneur does is sees a new community that, could, that didn't exist that could exist. In that sense, I don't think a social entrepreneur is so different from a market entrepreneur. Yeah. And if you believe in that community, if you believe that's, that's what you were put on this earth to create, then you should want to empower that community and not some random other set of people who happen to give capital to the project, right? And that option isn't available really today. It isn't available to sustain yourself and to empower a, a new community to come into existence. But what's stopping it, right? Why couldn't we have the world that you're talking about? And some people, I think, would choose that world, just like people choose to make open source software and give it away. They don't, they don't trying to make a profit, either because they can afford to do that, or they just prefer it aesthetically, emotionally, philosophically, theologically, spiritually. We can do that now. It does, it's struggling to compete against the world that you're trying to change. So what's, because, what's stopping? Because of the, like, we don't have the capital to support investment at scale in that type of thing. I think, like, relative to the capital that is invested, the return, like, actually, I think that's the best way to think about it. You think about the, like, funds that actually go into open source software or the funds that go into a lot of things like uh, mutual aid, these uh uh, civil s- sector, um, uh, quasi-charitable organizations, or I don't know if you know Hillary Cottom's work, uh, the incredible work she's done on sort of horizontal uh, social support. The the return on, ROI on those projects is just like infinitely higher than is the ROI on private um, sector software development or the ROI on government, uh, you know, administrative uh, social support. And so ROI I think being we, return on return investment. on investment. Yeah, exactly. So like we should want, you know, when, when an ROI is high somewhere, we should want to invest more in that area. You know, we should find we should want to find ways to empower that type of activity more fully. So your argument is, is that the free rider problem is stopping that to some extent. And the way we can overcome that is by pledging tax revenue and other funds like that, other taxation of various kinds and use the signals of the bottom-up crowdsourced story to funnel the funds from the coercive state so that they're not just spent on, say, special interests. 
That'd yeah, be, I, I don't necessarily right? like the term coercive state because no, I, you I, 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 think, I, I apologize. I, 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 mean I, I think the, <laughs> I think the, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, but you do go to jail. Assumption. You, yeah. you do go to jail if you don't pay your taxes. So, uh, there's a yeah, cursive and part. You, and it. you do go to jail if you, uh, you know, walk onto someone else's property and set up a house there or something like that. So like, you know, I, I, like, I, I think uh, most coercion out there is done through the state by private entities, not uh, by the state on private entities. So uh, that's that's I, I have a different perspective on it than uh, than you might. OK, but how do, how do we get there from here? What what? Um, and by the way, I, I, as we're talking, I actually think I wrote a paper in 1987 in the JP on this. So I'm going to dig that up and send it to yeah. you, Glenn, you, and you'll be able to understand it because <laughs> I won't. Great. It was too long ago for me. But um, the idea was that was that was that we could radically change. And I think this is kind of what you're saying. The charitable deduction is an attempt at, at is a very tiny step in this direction because the charitable deduction says if you're willing to give some of your money to a cause, the state will match it in some dimension in the form of a reduced tax burden. I, I think people fundamentally misunderstand tax deductibility. I think they think that you make money giving your money away. You don't. You just don't lose as much. And And the idea would be perhaps, that the welfare state could be funded by a radically larger, instead of a, your marginal tax rate, it could be just a very, very enormously many, many-fold tax subsidy to things that people give money to, not just related to your yeah. own. So that's so exactly that's right. That's kind of what you're saying, right? That's exactly right. And we need to structure it in such a way that really accounts for the free rider effect. So what is the free rider effect? If you're a small part of a large good, the free rider effect is the strongest, right? If you're a, if you're like giving most of the money, in fact, it turns out that the, there's zero, essentially zero, almost zero free rider effect for the single person who values the thing most. It's the free rider effect is all for the smaller players, basically. I mean, that's a, that's it's, an overstatement, it's, but well, it's Saudi Arabia and OPEC in the old yes, days, right? They, exactly. They, 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 everybody's free riding, but not Saudi Arabia because they have a huge stake in it. Exactly, and so, and. Go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to say, so the the right way to structure this is you want to give the biggest matches to the smallest players. In fact, one way to think about it is the Kantian, you know, categorical imperative. You want everyone to act as if they're sort of controlling everyone's behavior, something like that, right? Yeah. So if you're one one thousandth of the total thing, you should get a thousand for one match. If you're fifty percent, you should only get a two for one match, right? And it turns out you can write that thing down as a differential equation, and you can just solve for what the solution it is. And it takes a particular form, which is this quadratic thing, which is being used to fund lots of open source software right now uh, on the Ethereum blockchain and in other environments. Um, and I think is a very um, exciting direction. I think there's a lot of limitations to it and I can tell you about some of the limitations, but I think it's a very exciting direction to think about. But this idea of, of, of funneling public funds based on private votes of money is not really your most radical idea, I'm thinking, because that's really working within the current institutional framework. Now, maybe the current institutional framework couldn't innovate that kind of change, but I think, don't you want to do something a little more radical to the whole governance thing? Well, I, I think that uh, the best innovations are ones which can be applied at a very small scale within the existing framework so that they can grow and blossom, but that when they do grow and fully blossom, they transform the whole environment. And I think that that is what this is a great example of. So yes, it can be done uh, in, in small steps and local ways. It's being done that way to show its merit. But if it really shows its merit eventually, I think basically the whole concept of the state and the whole concept of capitalism both sort of melt away and all of the, you know, institutions we have supplying things to us come through this kind of participatory democratic mechanism uh, at many different scales in many different ways in this very flexible form. Now, there's even more radical things that I, I, I could show you uh, as well, Russ, but I think that they would go, they would all have this property that they can be built from within the existing system in bottom-up ways, because I think trying to impose something like that top-down is the way to uh, create a lot of chaos and destruction and uh, and and danger, 
uh, I think only when we can show that it can build within an existing system is, is it likely to be beneficial and gain legitimacy. I want to go back to the word democratic in that last lovely peroration you just gave. Um, I think that's the right word. Um, usually we think of democracy as votes, one person, one vote. You're suggesting, I mean, you're trying implicitly, I think you're answering the objection I raised earlier, which is the skin in the game. You're saying it's not so much democracy as the voting electoral process that we associate with democracy. It's it's the participatory part and the spreading out of power over the organization or the or the product. Is that a, a fair point? Yeah, I mean, I used to believe that democracy represented a particular mechanism. That's how I used to think about it as well. But I've changed my perspective on that. To me, democracy has come to mean much more a a set of values. Um, And those values include things like symmetry of power. If entity A has power over entity B, entity B should have equal and opposite power over entity A. You could also call that self-government or something like that. Um, Another fundamental value to me of democracy is what I would call epistemic comparative advantage. The notion that um, rather than... uh, saying like this person is smarter than that person. Instead, we look for the differences in the way that different people think and look at them as complementary to each other and look for gains from trade, from exchanging perspectives. Um, So those are some of the values that I I see as essential to democracy. Um, And we don't really have a set of institutions that instantiate those values well. We have a set of institutions that are somewhat motivated by those concepts and, and maybe at the time that they were created did a reasonable job of trying to achieve some of them, but don't really adapt to the ways in which society has changed very completely. So let me give you an example from, um, again, from the tech world. I'm going to try to invoke kind of arguments that my uh, libertarian friends would make in, in response to your to your viewpoint. I'm not totally convinced by those, maybe the way I might have been in the past. So I want to try to evoke those, though, and let you let you respond to it. Now, so you could argue, well, you know, I don't have to use Google. First of all, they don't charge me anything directly. So when I do use them, it's really kind of a great deal for me, as you were suggesting earlier. I've got all this fabulous search capability. I get all these, could even argue, I get all these great ads that come to me. Where's the power there? What power do they have over me? They don't take my money. They give me a bunch of stuff without charging me for it. I really like it. What, where's this asymmetry of power you're talking about? And if you think there is one, says the sort of classical liberal viewpoint, I'm going to call it the Schumpeterian viewpoint that I associate with book two of capitalism, socialism, and democracy, and it, there's going to be overturn. It's going to change. You know, Google's got the upper hand now, but you know, those large profits they're making through advertising, those are a prize for someone else to do it better. They'll do that better by luring me away. I don't have to be afraid of them. Everything's fine. What's wrong yeah, with that argument? So, so um, I, I think the first thing to recognize is that um, the option of exit is not, uh, in most circumstances, a, a sufficient way to allow people to deal with the problem of power. So, I mean, the United States has no prohibitions on leaving the United States. Um, and in fact, you can even take most of your property with you when you leave the United States. We have very few ex- export capital controls, right? And yet... Yeah, I'm doing great here in Israel so far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think most people wouldn't say that that's sufficient to give them a capacity to control their lives to self-govern because there's a lot of things that tie them to the United States as a, you know, that they can't effectively take with them. Um, Whether it be their communities, whether it be uh, knowledge and value that they have within particular industry structure. There's, there's many connections that, that make them rooted, placed somewhere. Um, And just going off to a seastead or whatever is not really a terribly appealing option for them. Um, and Seastead, by the way, for those who don't know about it, is like an imaginary notion of building some land in the middle of the ocean or something. We like have this. an episode on it with Patrick yeah, yeah. Friedman. Okay. Just, yeah. It's yeah. in the archives. Yeah. We'll link to it. <laughs> um, and uh, 
So people, if, if something ties someone to an environment, they need to have voice in that environment in order to exercise their, you know, rights of self-government. Now, of course, things will and can and should evolve over time to undermine the power uh, of existing institutions. But in my mind, that's all the more reason why we should focus on accelerating the forces that allow that to happen. Um, so, yes, it's true. Those institutions will be disrupted. The new things will come along um, and should. Uh, but, you know, what determines the rate of economic growth is the rate of technological progress. What determines the rate of industrial progress is the rate at which we're able to bring new institutions into existence to respond to new social realities. And if anything is slowing those down, uh, it should be a primary goal, I think, of social policy to counteract that and to instead accelerate that process of change and diversification and so forth. That's a really interesting set of ideas. Um, I think most people, when they hear these kind of ideas, go... Um, well, that's just goofy and weird, and I, you know, uh, but I don't like to think that. I, there's a lot of things I like about all, about what you said. What are you doing to get there from here? Or another question might be, what's the steps, the smaller steps locally that might um, help? I mean, you know, Paul Romer's been on the program talking about charter cities. Paul has tried very, very hard to get one city to just take a chance, try it, and that if it really is a good idea, you might need more than one, <laughs> but but with the idea is you don't need to have every city in the world become a church city. You, you can, to innovate in the way that he described, you can go listen to that episode if you want, listeners, but my point is that a lot of times people hear radical ideas that are new and they go, oh, those are radical, I don't want to deal with them, I don't want to think about it, too scary, and maybe they're right. Conservatism has some, I think, has something wise to say about radical change. But you're suggesting, I think, from what you said before, that it would be nice to let some things change. Instead of letting a thousand flowers bloom, maybe 20. Um, is Taiwan that example that, that will be transformative, that people will go like, oh, I want some of that? What do you, how do you think about this, this process of institutional innovation that you're making a case for probably my favorite book on this topic is Hannah Arendt's on revolution. Um, and what Arendt argues in that book is that there, there's kind of two types of quote revolution. There's the like American and the French model. The American model builds, um, legitimacy first and authority second. Um, and the French builds authority first and legitimacy second. What does that yeah. mean? Uh, so legitimacy comes from people having lived in a particular way and knowing that it's a better way to live <laughs> uh, and just wanting that way of life not to be sort of crowded out or overrun by other things. And, um, a, 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 you know, authority first means you don't like the way things are, so you blow things up and then hope something better comes in its place. Um, and so I'm a, a big believer in that distinction, and I'm, I'm a big believer that we need legitimacy first and authority second. And so um, my, my view is that we need to create conditions that allow for um, widespread experiments within the existing system in cooperation with existing institutions to build a future like this. And, and you know, that's the reason why I work at a big corporation like Microsoft and work with governments. I, I think that the, the, those possibilities come not from just um, chaos or destroying things, but rather from sort of checking and balancing existing centers of power to open space for new things to emerge. And checking and balancing isn't the only thing we need to do to get there. You need to actually foster that kind of entrepreneurship. You need artists to help people imagine different futures. You need to tell stories about the best examples out there. And one of those best examples is Taiwan. And I do strongly encourage everyone to look into what the digital minister there, Audrey Tong, has done. She refers to herself as a conservative anarchist. 
and much of what I've um, uh, what I'm talking about sort of comes from the inspiration that that she's offered. Uh, she says she works with the government, not for the government, um, to to bring forward these types of civil collaborations to serve what you know people in the government are trying to do better, and eventually offer these civil uh, alternatives uh, to you know the administrative state. My guest, my guest today has been Glenn Weil. Glenn, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.